If you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians chapter 1. This week we are continuing on our series on the Trinity. Last week I, I know I gave you guys like a data dump of all of these different verses from the Old Testament about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. And all of that is intended uh, by design to really give you guys resources to know uh, where to go if you were to go and talk to someone about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I intended that message to be a little bit dry, but with, an, again, it was almost like a Sunday school class. Um, I did more teaching than I did preaching because I wanted to inform you that the Bible indeed supports the idea of the Trinity and that the Trinity is throughout Scripture. Um, so that one day, or if, and if not when, uh, you're going to encounter people that do not understand the Trinity. Um, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about about that, how do we defend the Trinity, and I'm really going to focus primarily on how do we defend it against those that are modalists, like the Jehovah Witnesses, or the semi-polytheistic, like the Mormons, uh, or even Islam, and my hope is to equip you guys in that way so that you have confidence in defending the faith. That when the Muslim person is challenging you on the seemingly illogical nature of the Trinity, that you can actually point to Scripture. Or if the Mormons uh, saying that the Bible doesn't use the word uh, Trinity, that you're able to use the Scripture to prove uh, that there is that our God is a triune God. Or even the Jehovah Witnesses, so they will even say things like, we totally believe God, Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's just that they switch forms when need be. Uh, that, that was, that's what we're going to talk about next week. And again, the, these all tie together in different ways. Uh, but last week, again, is more about just the information that the, the, the Scripture teaches us about the Trinity. This week, the, tonight's message is it's going to be more the typical sermon type where I'm going to walk through a text and in this uh, passage, Ephesians chapter 1, I think the beginning of uh, Paul's letter to Ephesus speaks about the Trinity. And I think the logic of this book is that when he talks about the, the doctrine of Trinity, it's not just simply for you to know knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Although that is true, you should know things about God because it's going to transform the way that you live. And if you were to summarize this book, this book would be, I think I'll summarize it this way, that Paul's writing to these Gentile Christians for them to know who God is so that they can walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that the, they're called to live out their faith. And I think as he goes through the beginning portion, and this portion here is actually a familiar text. It's supposed to show us that we worship a triune God. And in the triune God, there's ways in which we can emulate the Trinity, uh, I mentioned last week there are attributes of God that we can uh, emulate or, um, or, or um, be like, and there are also attributes that it's just so beyond us because we're finite creatures, right? Like we are not going to be omniscient, we're not going to be omnipresent, but there are things that which Christ and the whole triune God is that we're called to be like. Uh, you know, we're called to be loving, we're called to be uh, united together. And these are all attributes within the Trinity that are supposed to impact our, our, the way that we live out our life. So how I'm going to structure this is that I'm going to walk through the text from Ephesians 1, from 3, all the way until 14. And then afterwards, 
I'll explain what I mean by that this is the logic of the book. That Paul, by explaining the different members of the Trinity and how they are all part of our salvation, how each of them function differently in in our salvation, that that's supposed to move us to be made new in Christ. And that's supposed to mean that we live differently. We're called to be holy like God is holy. And we will never be more like our God unless we know the Trinity better. And uh, every good that we receive from the Lord, everything that we are, is for his glory. So let me start here by describing the Father. Our first point is the Father. What is the Father's role in our salvation? Again, these should be familiar texts to all of us. But then later we'll get to the application, how the Trinity impacts the way that we live out our daily life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. So Paul here starts by telling us that the, our salvation begins with the Father. That all the blessings that we have, every, the reason why we can read this and understand what Paul is talking about is because God the Father has predestined us for salvation. That we are transformed to be like Jesus because of what the Father has done before all eternity, before the foundation of the world. And it says here that blessed be the God. There's this praising of the Lord here. Uh, be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the blessings that we receive in this life are linked to the heavenly realms. All the things that we experience, all the things that we are in this moment right now as Christians are a result of what God has done before time and is linked to the things that are in heaven. Uh, when we think about the church, the church is often described as a foretaste of heaven because there's aspects of it where uh, what heaven is like a foretaste of what heaven is like. We get to fellowship with one another. We get to sing songs. We get to uh, be with God. We get to even, even when we have communion, it's a, it's a foretaste of what it's like to have a meal with our Savior. All of these things are just blessings of a, or a foreshadow of the heavenly things that we will be able to experience one day. And all the blessings that we have are linked to these heavenly things. And all that we are is given to us by the Father. He chose us with a particular purpose, and that's to give him glory. It says here, if you just kind of jump down uh, to verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God has done all that he has done in time to, to magnify his glory, to show how worthy he is of all worship. All that we have in Christ is given to us for his glory. And all the spiritual blessing that we get to enjoy in this life is from God. But what are these spiritual blessings that he talks about um, in verse 3? And I would argue that there's things like joy, there's hope, there's assurance, there's, uh, there's uh, the ability to serve one another. Uh, but I think of all the spiritual blessing that God has given us, the primary one is that we are we're made, uh, God made himself known to us by working in our hearts, by changing who we are from dead, spiritually dead to spiritual life. 
And that's why we get to have all these spiritual blessings. All the spiritual blessings, that is the, the crown jewel. And it is because of that we should worship him more. We should praise him. We should glorify him. Verse 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God chose us. Paul wants us to know that since God has chosen us for this particular life, we need to be blameless. We need to be holy. We need to be like him in that way. And part of this understanding of the Trinity will, will, I, I would hope, will force us to live our life differently. The Father chose us not because we are good, but it's only because he is good. There's nothing good about us, nothing to do with our own merits, nothing to do with our own abilities, nothing to do with our own talents, but it has everything to do with the good nature of, of God. If God chose us for him, there's going to be a, uh, there should be and there must be a difference in the way that we live. God chose us for a particular purpose, and we're called to be blameless, meaning that we're away from sin. And, and holy, we're called, meaning we're different from the world. He chose us, and God chose us knowing our faults and flaws. This is unique interest in us for his own glory. And you see that in verse 6, he says, as I mentioned, it's a glory for his grace. In verse 12 later, we'll see that it's the glory to the Lord, it's a to, to Christ Jesus. For so to the end, that we who were the first hope in Christ would be uh, to the praise of his glory. And then the Holy Spirit as well in verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of, his, of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Each member of the Trinity gets glorified as we, uh, as we understand our salvation, as we understand different facets and how each member is, is, is active in our salvation. We worship them better. We praise them better. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Again, that he's, he chose us. He chose us for adoption. This is the language of of buying someone, or, or, or not buying someone, but like, I guess purchasing someone to be part of your family. They were probably a slave at one point, or they were abandoned, and yet there was someone that was loving enough to be able to take them into their family. And that's a picture that we have here, that Paul saying that our God, our Heavenly Father, was willing to adopt us into his family. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, the Lord chose us before the foundations of the world, and he's transformed us into the image of his son so that we are now adopted into his family. We're not just a bunch of solo Christians by ourselves, but that we're all part of one family, and that family is God's family. And it says at the end of verse 5 here, that's according to the kind intention of his will. The reason... <coughs> The reason why God chose us is because of his kindness. He takes pleasure in adopting us as his children. We are a delight to him, not because of anything of ourselves, but because of, what he, what, because of, because of the fact that he, he loves us. He likes to see um, people worship him. That is, in, in the chief end of man is to delight in the Lord. It was good for human, human, humankinds is that we worship him. And that he delights in that. But it's also his kindness. He knows that that's what's best for us and that's what magnifies his glory. And therefore he adopts us into his family. 
you are most like our Heavenly Father when you understand what it's like to be his children. We're changed. Our desires are changed. You know, how does that happen? Why, if, if God predestined us, then what choice do we have? And I think, uh, I think we understand that there is a human responsibility, human responsibility. There's a response for us as, as believers that we are called to place our faith in him. But how he changes us uh, to become just, you know, kind of foreign and, and not his family, enemies of God, to become his children. So he changes our affections. He's the one that predestined us and, and changed our hearts so that we can desire him. And we're chosen not because of anything that we, uh, that, that's good about us, rather in spite of us. We're chosen ultimately to look like his perfect son. And we must be transformed to the image of the son. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. Election must lead to worship and praise because God chose us. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his love or kindness, but he chose us because of, because of his kindness, because of his love. But why did he chose us? To what end? He chose us to be like Christ. When you know where we are positionally in the Lord, it should drive us to be more like his son. See, we're called to be, we're adopted into his family. What does that look like? And I think he shows us by giving us a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that perfect son, which gets to our second point. First is the, the father. We see that in verse uh, three to six. And now we see the son, verse seven to 12. In him, sorry, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the richness of his grace. Jesus Christ uh, ransomed us through his blood. God's grace is unbelievable. God grants us favor in Christ and no one else. And this word redemption here is this idea of buying back something that belongs to you. I don't know if you, that's ever happened to you before where you've lost something and then they had to, you had to try and find ways to prove that, you, that that object is yours. I had a friend that had his car stolen and, um, and you know, in order for you to get the car out, oh, they eventually found the car, but in order to get the car away from the, the I guess, the place where they take cars, the impound cars after it's abandoned, so you have to pay the person uh, to, to let your car go. Even though, you, even though that car belongs to you, you have to redeem it. And that's this idea here. This word redemption is the idea of buying something that, be- that actually originally belongs to you, that it takes something uh, out of you in order to get something back. And we exist, all of us, and Adam was the first one, that he was made in the image of God with the, with the, with the purpose to, uh, to glorify the Lord and to represent him on earth, to bear his image on, on all over the earth. But sin corrupted him and it separated him from the Lord, and in turn, all of us are the same way. We're separated from God, and God has to redeem us. Even though all of us are, uh, are created by God, he knit us in the womb. Sin separates us. And he needs to find a way to purchase, purchase us back. And he does so through his son. His son died for us. It's in him that we have salvation. Verse 7 is here, in him. This is a geographical word, meaning that we're close in proximity. Uh, that only in Christ, because of the proximity we have in Christ, that we have this redemption. And it's through his blood. This is a reference throughout the Old Testament, how life has to be taken in order to give life to someone else. 
You know, Leviticus 17.11 makes that reference that, that there's something that needs to die in your place in order to pay for your sin. But why must sin be dealt in this particular way? Why must sin require death? Why is that the punishment? Well, it's because this is how God designed the world. You live a sinful life, your life should be taken because you're sinning against him. And what is graphic in the world, it's axiomatic for the Christian. We understand that our entire faith and this world hinges on someone dying on our place. And Jesus pays for our sin through his blood. It says here, according to the richness of his grace, all of our failings to live completely and fully like Christ, we've all failed to live like Christ. But yet in his abundance of his grace, the richness of his grace, he's willing to, um, to pay for our sins. There's this infinite love, joy, and fellowship amongst the Trinity. And before the foundation world, there's a love that they have for one another. And that's how they demonstrate that love towards us, by willing to give up the second member of the Trinity so that we can have a right relationship with him, so that we can experience what the Trinity was like before the foundations of the world. And it says here the richness of his grace, this abundance of grace. I know recently uh, inflation and everything is causing things to be you know, skyrocketing. People are afraid that they're going to run out of money and, um, and, uh, and even resources. But that's not like our Heavenly Father. There's this infinite amount of grace that he has towards us. That even though we fail and we fail and we fail, God in his grace, he lavished that onto us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of that's just his nature. Our Trinity, our triune God is a God that is a God that's filled with grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Uh, he, he gives this to us. This word insight is, is exact precision. It's this exacting grace that he gives it to us particularly for those that believe in him. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Again, we see this same word about this kind intention as we see in verse 5. It's brought up again because we know that our God redeemed us. He chose us, and this is mystery to it. Why would he do this to us and for us? Again, to, to reveal his goodness is to show us a little bit about himself that we would not have known without his grace. Now, this kind of goes into the issue of the problem of evil. There's always a question of why would God allow evil in this world? And theologians wrestle with it all the time trying to figure out why, and even secular people, they try to attack God by using a theological argument or, or secular arguments against God, which implies that you must somehow have some sort of theological framework, but never mind that. But with this problem of evil, I think the best answer, why is there evil in this world, is that that God allows evil in this world so he can show you his love. He can show you his grace, that we can worship him better because there's evil in the world, because we're redeemed, that we're taken out of this, that we're rescued. It allows us to understand experientially how good and how loving our God is. God made himself known to us. We were all rebels at one point. We were blinded by our sin, yet this mystery of the gospel is revealed to us. God shows you that you need him in Christ. And you understand that when Paul's writing this mystery, it's like the Old Testament saints looking and anticipating for the Savior to come. And that's full, it's completely revealed in the, in, in the second person of the Trinity, that this mystery is 
is, is, is discovered, it's solved in Jesus Christ. Verse 10, with a view of the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is basically what Paul's saying here is that everything is completed in Christ. God works through all of the different ages. You see here the fullness of times in this plural. Uh, the word in, I think, the King James used the word dispensation or different eras. The fullness of all the eras is completed in Christ. All of the patriarchs from Abraham and on, everyone, or even from Adam and on, all the way down uh, through Abraham and down all the way to, uh, to, to David and Solomon and every Old Testament king and patriarch and judges, whoever, they were all looking forward to the Savior. And it is finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God works through different ages to reveal his gospel, and every Old Testament saint were being, point, were being pointed to this coming Savior, and all things are brought to fruition in Christ. The Trinity is important for us to understand that it was the God in before the foundation world made this plan. He sent his Son to fulfill that plan, and he does so, verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The Trinity is, is involved in our, in our salvation. All three persons share the same will. All three persons uh, are deities. All of them function distinctly, though, in, in our salvation. So the Father predestines. The Son redeems us. God presents, uh, God presents his love uh, through the Trinity. Each member uh, points to one another to glorify this triune God. Yet there is this counsel here. You notice that he's a counsel of his will. There's this one will that they all share. Um, this is this eternal plan of the Father that's fulfilled in Christ that is applied to, applied to us through the Holy Spirit. But when God plans salvation, how does it work? Again, it's, he sent his Son John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 38. This is what Jesus said. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he understands that Jesus is not operating on his own agenda, that each of the members of Trinity have the same will. Jesus, in his humanity, is not doing anything on his own initiative, but rather he's doing the will of the Father. And Jesus isn't going to, he isn't going to go rogue here, but he's doing the divine will that he was sent to do. In John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them, on him. So there's this understanding that God gave the Spirit to the Son. Jesus speaks the word of God. And in sending Jesus, God, goes, um, God gives authority to Jesus just as the Father, the Lord, uh, loved the Son. And when did this happen? It was before eternity passed. So this plan that the, the triune, all members of the Trinity have had, had this plan before the foundations of the world. is before, in, in eternity past. The Father loves the Son, so he sent his Son into the world and elect to, say, to redeem the elect. And the Son loves the Father so much that Jesus will save humanity, sanctify them, and bring this ransom people to him. 
which we'll see later uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about the, that what husbands are supposed to be. It's supposed to be this illustration of um, when husbands care for their wives and sanctify them through the word that will present um, their spouse to, glory, uh, to the Father is what Christ is going to do with us as well. We are examples of how God the Father and God the Son works and this love that they have with one another. They all love each other and seek to glorify each other in the Godhead, and this is part of the redemptive plan. The Father sends a Son in love, and the Son redeems us in love, and the Holy Spirit keeps us in love, which gets to actually our third point, that the Holy Spirit keeps us. Uh, he seals our salvation. See verse uh, 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is signed by faith. We believe uh, because of, of uh, we have our salvation because of, the, of, of trusting in the words of God. We heard the truth about the Lord, we listened to, God, this, to scripture, and that led us to salvation. You can, however, hear God's word and not be converted. I mean, this is what before we jumped into the series, uh, we went through the parables, and the parable of the four soils was like this, that some people will not hear God's word, whether it's because the devil pr- takes it away or because of shallow roots. Sometimes people will hear God's word, and they will not uh, be transformed by it. There's no belief in it. Having God's word doesn't automatically mean, or hearing God's word doesn't automatically mean that you'll be saved. But one thing that you need is to believe in this truth. Your belief, again, is supernatural. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He changes your desires so you can believe and make sense of Scripture. Saving faith is the heart in terms of being... Uh, saving, saving faith is, is what you need to be converted to Christianity. And it says here that you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. This word seal is... This is exactly what you think it might be if you've seen those old movies where they have the envelope with a wax figure and they seal it and they're not supposed to open it because this will be for uh, a particular person and it's sealed and it means that if it's open, that means it's, um, it's, it's void. And we belong to him. We're sealed in that way. We have this assurance, this absolute safety in God. You cannot lose your salvation. He, our, the Holy Spirit, is one that guards your faith and protects you. You know, when I... When I think about our day and age and how there really is no safe zones in our world, whether it's attacking from foreign or domestic, there's always going to be crime in this world. And no matter how much security you have, no matter what you buy, like, you know, those ADT or, or those, uh, anything that gives you security in your home or any guns or whatever you choose to protect yourself, you understand that those things are limited in their protection, that there are ways around it that you can actually lose security. But that's not the case when it comes to our Lord. Our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit seals us. He protects us. He guards us so that we belong to him, that you cannot lose your salvation. It gives us this, because we're sealed in him. There's this authentic ownership that's in God. The Holy Spirit renews uh, us and gives us new life. He said the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference here in verse 13 at the end to, to things like Jeremiah 31, 
uh, where uh, God promised that the Holy Spirit will enter and give them a new heart, that they can finally keep the law. Because back then, the Old Testament, uh, the law was outside of them. They would read it, but there's nothing that changes in, inside, that it doesn't affect them on their desires. It's just rules that they follow. But God promised one day that the Holy Spirit will, will, will change us, will clean us from the inside out. And, and um, if you've ever gone to a car wash, you understand what this is like. When you go in, uh, it only washes the outside of the car. Because if it washes inside of the car, then there's something wrong there. You're supposed to close the windows. Um, because it's intent is we'll only wash the outside of the car. That's what the Old Testament law was like. It's designed to just set some moral guidelines on what you're supposed to, how you're supposed to live. But it wasn't able to change the heart of the person. It wasn't able to wash away what's going on inside. And Jeremiah 31 prophesies that there will be the Spirit indwelling in us so that we are able to obey from faith and live out the law perfectly, or at least strive to live out the law. And in John chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come when he leaves. When he leaves, the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to make them remember everything. He's going to be this paraclete and this helper. And when he comes, he's going to give us assurance. Give us this faith, verse verse fourteen, uh, who is given up as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view of redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. This word pledge here, it's this idea of an engagement ring or a down payment. The Holy Spirit stays with you and ministers uh, to you for the rest of your life. You belong to the Lord. To walk in the Spirit means that you know truth, you've heard it, and you believe it, and the Lord in the, the God the Spirit works in your life so you can be transformed to be more like the Son. You're able to fulfill God's, the Father's law and his will because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you're able to live and look more like the Son. So what is supposed to happen if we have the Spirit? What are the practical implications, at least with the Trinity? Again, the whole, in order for us to understand the logic of this book, we understand that the, every member of the Trinity has, has a different partner of salvation. I do believe that as we continue to understand this doctrine of the Trinity or even aspect of the Trinity, that it will make us look like him. Uh, again, there are attributes of the Trinity that we cannot have. We get that. Uh, but within the Trinity, there are things that we can have and actually exhibit in our life. So I think one of them is this. So we talk about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what does, it look, what does living out the Trinity look like in our life? What does that practically look like? Well, I think one of them is that there's unity. See, in this book, again, following the logic of this book, if you keep going on, we see that um, Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being Diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit and bond of peace. This first thing that we see is that if we are, if we worship this triune God, that there must be a unity that we share with one another in the context of the church, in the way that the Trinity has a unity with one another. In the, the verses I just read, it says, continuing on, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is who is over all and through all and in all. Every member of the Trinity has this unity, and we're called to, to keep this unity, just like how the triune God is, un, is united with one another. 
Trinity share the same will uh, and this love and this unity that they have, and that's something that we are called and instructed to. And I think that's why Paul writes it here in, from beginning from really the last three chapters. Like He gives all these practical applications and it's able to reflect this triune God that, we're, that he presented in the beginning of the chapter. And it's, that, it's knowing that, that we have this triune God that works in harmony with one another, but yet there's distinct, it allows us as believers in the church to have unity. No matter our backgrounds or how different we are, there should be something that's, that makes us different. That is, we are united. And I'm not saying that you can't have secondary disagreements and issues. I'm just saying that um, there are going to be things that we disagree, but we're still united together. Uh, whenever, if, you know, if I had... If you had me during your membership interview, I would always I would, I would ask, like, are there any doctrinal things that you disagree with? And sometimes people will say things like, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't hold to this view of membership. And like, what does that mean? Like, oh, I'm a congregationalist and not really for elder rule. It's like, okay, um, but you understand that our church holds the elder rule, and as long as you don't cause division in the church, you're more than welcome to join our, our body. And they're like, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, they, they were going to keep that unity because we're called to be united to one another. Or there's some sort of different end-time view. Like, yeah, it's okay that we have disagreements here, but that we, we don't uh, cause disunity because of these secondary issues. Because if we're all united in Christ, yes, we'll have different, we might have different agreements in terms of even how to live our life in terms of uh, principles and gray areas, but in the gospel and all things that are essential, we have unity. And that's, I think, a picture, a little small glimmer of what the, the triune God is like. All three members of the Trinity have complete harmony with one another. So that means that if you choose to divide a church, if you choose to cause conflict, to, to, make, uh, to, to kind of cause disunity, you are not acting the way that God is. Again, we're called to worship this one true God who is a triune God, and our triune God is the God of unity. Second, not only is it one of the attributes of the triune God that we can have is unity, but also second is service. Um, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse um, 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until, all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and all the knowledge of the Son to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. See, each member of the Trinity, they're still working in, in time and space right now. God has placed uh, his redemptive plan, and he, met, he set his redemptive plan, and he even providentially may move things around. Uh, the Son, is right now, if you think of what, what, is, what is Christ doing, he's interceding for us, he's preparing a place for us, he, he's even returning. Um, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and uh, he goes and, and works in our life to prick our conscience so that we can um, follow him. You know, the Father plans, the Son is preparing, and the Spirit is pricking us to be more like his Son. In other words, all three members of the Trinity is working, right? Like even in Ephesians 4.11, it's like he gave. There's some, he's raising up teachers. He's raising up people. He's raising up people to raise up other people. These are all working of the Holy Spirit. And as we serve, we reflect this triune God. Because a triune God is a God that serves. He's, he's working. He's working in the life of believers. And, um, and it, for us as Christians, we're called to people that serve. So how are you using the gifts that God has given you? Because the more you serve, the more that you're using God, God's ability that he's given you, the more you reflect this triune God. So those are unity. 
that we see in the triune in the in the in the in the Trinity, but also service, but also truth. Verse four, verse twenty-one. If indeed you have heard him and have ta- have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that's reference to your former manner of life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit. And that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and of holiness of the truth. All three members of Trinity are true. Uh, they speak truth. There's nothing about them that's lies. They don't, they, don't, they don't tell a lie. Nothing of their plans are, are double-tongued. They're all united in their will. So everything that they say, everything that they do is absolutely true. I think Paul is intentionally putting this here so that we can see that our triune God is a God of truth. A God is truth. And it may not be easy for us uh, sometimes to be as truthful, but that's how God, our, our God is. He's a truthful God. Uh, if you look back up in verse 15, it's speaking the truth in love. We are called to be truth tellers, and we're called to live in truth because our God is a God of truth. You can't strip away truth from the Trinity. And in the same way, if that's true about our God, that you cannot strip truth away from your life. I think there is a temptation nowadays to, to deny aspects of Scripture because we're afraid of the culture, whether it's because of some sort of sexual ethic that the world tries to adapt and force the culture to believe in, or, or even the things of work or whatever, or things how the family should look. Uh, we don't live by those things because we live by truth. The world lives in this illusion that filled with lies, and we, the reason why we live the way that we do is because it is true, and the reason why we know these things are true because our God is true. He is filled with truth. He is truth. All truth derives from this triune God. Now, is this you? Well, can you, do you see yourself in this way? Or is there some sort of hypocrisy in your life? Do you see yourself having this living one way at church and living a completely different life elsewhere. If you are, then you're not living in truth. Rather, you're living a lie. If you call yourself a Christian, there should be, this, there, there should be complete harmony between your profession of faith and the way that you live, the way that things that you talk about, the things you think about, they should all be centered around truth. Why? Because our triune God is true. And another one that I can think about is giving. He's a, our God is a giving God. He's a generous God. I read um, verse 12, how he, he, or verse 11, how he gave some of the apostles. But looking back at chapter 4, verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, a captive, uh, he led a captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who was descended in is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Our God, and even in the, in the context of the triune, uh, in, the, in the Godhead itself, is a God that gives to one another. I remember I made reference to last week about John 17, how God uh, gives the church to Christ so they'd be sanctified, and that Christ is going to bring the, um, the church to the Lord. And we see this even... Jumping forward, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, or 25, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, 
Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So there's this connection that, uh, this parallel, this picture that husbands will treat their wife a certain way and to, and to cause them to grow and to sanctify through the word. And it's the same way that Christ is to the bride. He's going to sanctify us and present us as a church to the Father. And you know, then how do we get there? It's because God gave us to, the, to, to Christ and he sanctified us through the death and resurrection of his son and redeems us and washes us through the, 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 the word and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and causes us to be like him. He, present, he will one day present us back to the Father. So we see this generosity between the triune God that they give to each other. And again, to elevate the triune God, to, to give him all the glory. And this principle about giving and generosity and giving it should be our life as well. We should be willing to give because our triune God is God that gives. Not only even between the, uh, each member of the Trinity, but he also gives to us as well. He gives us all these spiritual gifts and all of these blessings, and that should be our attitude towards one another, that we should be generous to each other because that's how our God is. Um, another one that I think I see as I look through this uh, passage in this book is, is submission. Um, we know this, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, even be, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And if you continue going on, it talks about how children need to submit to fathers um, or parents, and then uh, people that work needs, or slaves need to submit to their masters, and masters need to submit uh, to God because he knows that he's, the ultimate authority is in the Lord. But particularly in um, Ephesians chapter 5 about how husbands love your, or your husbands is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. There's a submission attitude that when wives submit to the husband, they, they get this picture of how Christ submits to the church. 1 Corinthians verse 11, verse 3, Paul makes the same argument. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So it, that, what this means is that when the son, he's willing to submit to God the Father. You know, God sent the son, he submitted to him, and he's able to go and do the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the, by the son himself. He submitted to him, and he was able to do what um, both the will of the Father and the Son. So there's a submission in there. You know, they're all uh, um, the same in terms of their deity and value and all of that. There is a submission aspect to it. I know there's a lot of debate in our Christian world right now about that. But I do think that, uh, yeah, Christ submitted to the Son, and he, he laid down um, himself, as it says in Philippians, he laid down his, uh, he, he entered into the world. He, he didn't um, account things that are I guess we could just look at here, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, uh, Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ here models submission for us. So when we submit, if you're, if you're living at home and you submit to your parents, or if you're in your marriage context, if you're wife, you submit to your husband, and husband, if you submit to uh, the Lord, you, you're emulating parts of what the, holy, the, the, the triune God is like. 
just like the Holy Spirit submits to uh, the, the Son when he gets sent out by the, by the Son, and the Son goes into the earth because he submits to the Father, so are we when we're supposed to emulate the submissive attitude. So we talked about how in the, tri- in the triune God there's unity, there's also service, there's um, truth, there's the generosity, and there's submission. And there's more, by the way. I'm just trying to make all my arguments from the book of Ephesians. The last one I could think of, just looking at this, is love. That in the triune God, in the, in the Godhead, there is this magnificent love that they have towards one another. Um, Ephesians 5, verse 2, it says, um, sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verse um, 25, husband, love your wife just as Christ has also loved her, and loved the church, and gave himself up for her. And, um, and uh, later on, in the end of the book, chapter 6, verse 23, peace be to the brethren, and love with God, uh, love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So there's this love that they share that we're expected to have with one another. Paul makes this argument that like one of the defining attributes of our God is that he is a God of love. And the way that we treat one another should be filled with love. I ended last week's sermon by pointing to uh, John chapter 17. That says that uh, from verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them just as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, although the world have not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and that I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So there's all these, what Jesus talks about in in, in John chapter 17, and Paul talks about how this is love that the Trinity should have for one another and how we should have this love for each other. It parallels because our love for each other is, should be stemmed from the Lord and it should reflect how the Lord loves the Father, the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Son. Like as I said last week, you are most like Christ when you love the Lord because Jesus loved the Lord. The Father, the, you know, God the Father, and you're more, you're most like a God the Father when you love the Son, and that's what we're called to be as well. We're called to love our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and that is going to have implications in the way that you treat one another. You're going to love each other. You're going to ha- you're going to show like godly, Christ-like love, which is everything that's talked about in First Corinthians 13. That there's this patient aspect, there's this forbearing attitude, there's this not being easily uh, bothered. All the things that we see in Scripture. It's stemmed out of this love that we have in Christ, that Christ loves us, and we understand that love for us because of the love that the Trinity has for one another, and therefore we need to live like that as well. If, uh, we're called to be holy like God is holy, and it's interesting that God describes himself in that way because we're called to be distinct. And everything that we do is a reflection not just of Christ, but also our triune God. So the more we understand 
the triune God, the more we think about how the triune God interacts with one another, it should have this impact in our life, whether it is unity. You know, you think about all the divisions that we have in the last few years over things like masks and COVID. You see that there is a test of that unity that, um, that we need to strive. There's a test in our unity that we need to strive for unity in the context of the church. And if, this, if, if you're not someone that strives for unity, then you're really not representing God well. And I'm not just speaking in terms of representing Christ, but I'm speaking representing of this triune God that we worship because he's a God of unity. When you don't serve one another, you don't reflect how Christ and the Christ, the Father and the, and the Spirit are like, because they're they're always serving. They're they're serving each other, and they're also serving us as well. Um, you know, Christ is again, as, as I mentioned, each of the members of the Trinity are, are doing something to to glorify the 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 Godhead. If you don't speak and live in truth, then you're not representing our Triune God faithfully, because our Triune God is the God of truth. And if you're not willing to be generous, then you don't represent, and you can't really represent our triune God accurately because our triune God is always giving towards one another. And at the same time, if you're not submissive, it shows you that you're not like our holy God, that he is, even in the Godhead, is submissive to the will of the Father. And ultimately, if you don't show love, then you don't understand our triune God because our God, in the triunity, in all of eternity past, since eternity past, has this perfect love for one another. And I hope that you understand that these are just, this is just book of Ephesians. I haven't gone to all the rest of the scriptures, and that's by design, because I do believe that when you understand the relationship between each member of the Trinity, that you can be, when we say be like God, or when scripture tells us be like God, where God is holy, that's one way in which we can faithfully represent God, in our love, in our service, in our, in our truth living, in, in our giving, in our generosity, in our, in our submission, and in our love. That's how we demonstrate um, living a holy life before the Lord, which is what I think Paul is trying to argue in the book of Ephesians. How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Our calling is to look at this triune God and live like this triune God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for being a triune God. Um, Lord, there is so much about this and so much about you that we do not fully grasp, but that should not deter us from wanting to strive to know you more. And I do hope for all of us, as we just look at this, this one particular epistle, and how you and each member of the Trinity is, 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 has a different role in our salvation, that we learn to love you more because of it, and to live like this triune God. May we be united in our church, that we strive to, uh, to keep uh, this unity that you have that you have, uh, that we have in you because you purchased us and you redeemed us. Also that we are people that, that serve uh, because you are God that serves, that you care and you raise up people uh, in the context of the church and even uh, serving the, uh, in the Godhead himself. Also that we are people that live in truth because you are truth, that each member of the Trinity is a God of truth. That we're generous because we understand how you have given uh, to one another um, the church, that we can be with you, that you've given Christ the bride so that the bride can be sanctified and be given back to you and presented to you. And may we be a submissive people to your word because you demonstrate that submissiveness uh, through um, being sent out by the Father uh, to live that perfect life and ascending the Spirit so that we can be regenerated and have new life. And that we also have this love that is 
that is reflective of the love that you guys all share in one in the Godhead, Lord. May we live life differently. May we live this holy life this, uh, as worshipers of this one triune God, Lord. We thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen.